born from our experiences as explorers and forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. He had connected with them in a way that they felt respect for him as a person and his knowledge of the wild and his respect for their way of life. If you are in this position that we are in, there's, um, I think, a responsibility to give something back. Greetings and welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is a place for influential athletes, adventurers, and activists to share their journeys, their inspiration, and deconstruct how they're adding more meaningful value to the world through their adventures. Today, we feature Conrad Anker and Jenny Lowe Anker. In 1999, world-renowned alpinist and adventurer Conrad Anker helped solve one of the most intriguing mysteries in the history of exploration by discovering George Mallory's body high on Mount Everest. Tragically, later that same year, he was involved in an avalanche accident where he lost one of his best friends and climbing partner, Alex Lowe. Alex was widely considered one of our greatest mountaineers. Alex was also a devoted father to three young sons and a loving husband to artist Jenny Lowe. Conrad and Jenny would in time find solace in one another, and growing together from this tragedy would found the Alex Lowe Charitable Fund to honor the spirit of a man who was not just blessed with the gifts of an alpinist, but a passion to connect with the people he met in the remote mountain regions of the world. Join us today as we talk about Alex and his legacy. Conrad and Jenny will discuss the inspiration for the Kumbu Climbing Center, or the KCC, a vocational climbing skills center for the indigenous people of the Everest region. We will hear the success stories of some of their students and their plans to build a new center and community building for the local Nepali people in the village of Fortse. And finally, Conrad finishes with some poignant, timely, and insightful advice on how we can all best make a positive impact with our time here on the planet. Conrad and Jenny, thanks for uh, joining me in the uh, tiny cramped space of the adventure activist camper. Yeah, thanks for having uh, us. Yeah, thanks a lot. And uh, thanks for your time and coming out here. At least we get to sit outside and, and enjoy some Idaho backcountry for the morning. One, I want to thank you again for your presentation last night. And it was great to hear um, a bit more about the uh, Kumbu Climbing Center and the Alex Lowe Charitable Foundation. I basically wanted to extend a little bit on some of the topics you had last night, but I also was curious to know a little bit more about the genesis of the idea and the decision to start the Kumbu Climbing School. And I think part of that does come from who Alex was and what he stood for and in, in the spirit of Alex. Beyond all of his accomplishments, you know, he seemed to have this uh, attachment and he had this quote, and I think it's it's in your book as well, is that there's a couple people that climb and there's, there's those who climb because their heart sings in the mountains and then there's others and then there's the others. I guess when you think and remember Alex and his time outside, why do you think adventure was so important for Alex? Do you have a story or a, another, I guess, insight or poignant about him that you think is insightful as far as what his time outside meant to him and how it really fulfilled his soul and his spirit? Well, I think that that's really kind of the whole reason I fell in love with him is he had that incredible energy and 
positive excitement of just being out in the wilderness. And he loved the wild places. And when he was out there and in those places and doing what he loved most, which was climbing, you know, he was just kind of a force to be reckoned with. And his exuberance was definitely something that everyone was affected by. So, yeah, he he loved being out. And he knew a lot about nature. His father was uh, a professor in the forestry school in Missoula. And so he grew up going to Boy Scouts and learning things, you know, within his own family in Montana. And, and he just had that love for wild places and everything in there. And we clicked because of that. I had a love for nature too, uh, growing up in Montana. So that's how I kind of got roped into his life. We we got roped in together. I think we had that shared enthusiasm for being out. He was way more into climbing than, than I ever was. But for a while, you know, I enjoyed that ride with him and got into climbing and adventuring. And we, did, we had some great adventures together. So when he died, I was a young widow with three small children, age three, seven, and ten. And... You know, it's the kind of shock. You know that it can happen, but it's still quite shocking when it happens to you, um, that kind of loss and grief. And so starting the Alex Lowe Charitable Foundation for me was a cathartic way to go forward with something positive, remembering Alex and taking all of the love that people had for him and putting it toward a, a positive end. And one of the things that he always came back from all of his expeditions and sang about and, you know, told stories about was all the indigenous people who he connected with and and just how much he loved the interaction with mountain people, you know, from around the globe and people who lived out in the wild places. Is there, and that's, that's part of the, the story of Alex I don't know much about. And you're, in your book, you address a little bit of some of these insights and moments like mm-hmm. his desire to step into these, you know, Baltistani, visit with these Baltistani families heading up into Pakistan. And I mean, are there any moments either you guys can remember that are particularly poignant about the sort of things Alex would do on expedition and, and how he did want to connect with the people when he was in the places he was at? Because I think that's in it, that's a part of his life that not many people know about. Mm-hmm. Well, Conrad was in Nepal with him, and maybe you have a story from that, but I can tell you one story mm-hmm. about his trip to Baffin, where he really enjoyed the Inuit that were guiding them up to where they were climbing, and they were camped out, you know, in some some icy place and he went off with the Inuit and went hunting with them. Oh, really? And so they were blown away that Alex knew how to hunt, you know, <laughs> coming from Montana. And so he went out and they got an Arctic hare or something uh-huh. like that. And Alex, Alex shot it and he knew how to skin it and they, they cooked it up together. And, <laughs> And his other climbing partners weren't part of that at all. They were kind of doing their own thing, hanging in the tent. And Alex was, you know, just hanging with the Inuit in their little camp and doing that. And so they were really, really impressed. And after his death, I had letters from those people. Really? Yeah. And they and they talked about how 
you know, he was an Inuit in his heart. And so <laughs> he had connected with them in a way that they felt respect for mm -hmm. him as a person and his knowledge of the wild and his respect for their way of life, which was a really uh, wonderful story. Wow, that's really remarkable. Conrad, do you have any insights or, uh, in regards to that with Alex and his? It, our relationship was based on climbing, but when you travel to the Himalayas, incredibly challenging mountains and mm -hmm. they're difficult to get to. And you can only do that with the support of the people, whether right. it's in the Karakoram, India, or Nepal, the people that live in these mountains, you have to partner with them and to get in there and to be oblivious to that just wasn't Alex's nature. He cared about people. So he was part of their life and gave them the respect by showing interest in who they were and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And Jenny, I was reading your book and I caught a, uh, a little quote that you had from, from Alex that was actually ad addressing his relationship with you, Conrad. And, and, and a part of the reason he had strong feelings for you. And I think it was part of this and that he said, Conrad is the most caring person I know. He has a clear grasp of the purpose of life happiness that stems not from the dogged pursuit of personal ambitions, but from sharing others, people's burdens and giving himself his time, possessions and illimitable energy. And I think, I mean, that's part of, I, I see that as a little bit of that respect <laughs> to you too, you know, to see that, wow, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I really respect this guy because I can tell he has the same sense of respect for the local people that I have and, and that willingness to, to spend time. Um, and I think that that means a lot. I know it means a lot for my friendships, uh, for those who I travel with too. And, and that, that makes for a really rich or special friendship. You know? It's a challenge traveling where we are in this century when we were able to travel all around the world, do different things. And we go back 150, 200 years and the Northern European explorers, they did not go there for reasons of adventure and altruism and things like that. Right. It was for economic reasons, right. for cultural reasons, it was imperialism. And so making that shift from people going to conquer and subjugate people to sharing their culture and appreciating it is, is ongoing. To be part of that dynamic is, I think, is something that appealed to both Alex and I. Yeah. And I wonder, and I, I guess I bring this up because I, I feel like maybe that was something that you found was really important to focus on as you were thinking about Alex Lowe's fund and mm -hmm. what it would represent mm -hmm. and how you would carry the spirit of Alex forward. And, and I think, you know, we think about when we want to honor someone, we think about what represents them best or what we, it's not necessarily proud of, but just kind of feel, makes us feel warm when we reminded of that person. Mm -hmm. And then there's a sense of that you want to find something meaningful to re replace that, that hole, that loss. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly having lost friends myself and feeling how I want to honor them in my life, you can't replace them, but you want to make something meaningful of it. It's the mm -hmm. concept of like the obstacle is the way, right? I mean, you have yeah. this, this yeah. tragic experience and you want to not necessarily make it a positive one in your life, but you want it to be more meaningful. Like carry the spirit. Of the carry the spirit forward. forward. Yeah. And, and that was the initial, you know, idea with starting the foundation. And, mm -hmm. 
And we didn't really even know in the very beginning months, it was Greg Mortensen who actually helped me get it going and mm-hmm. suggested it as a way to fill that hole, give solace, you know, to the grief that was there and purpose, you know, in each, each day going forward. And Alex had just been in Pakistan the, the months before he died. And he was real impressed with the work Greg was doing over there. And he had talked to me about it. And so, so initially, you know, getting going, that was it. And as time went on, it's now been 18 years this autumn since Alex's death. So, you know, you don't really realize it, but it's really Conrad and myself and our combined energy and and ideals that have carried the the thing forward. You know, initially it was Alex uh, who inspired us to get it going. But, you know, I think that we have been the impetus behind the continuation. And then the many people who have volunteered and been part of uh, the KCC and the Magic Yeti mm-hmm. Libraries and the work we have done in Nepal and extraordinary efforts on uh, behalf of some of our board members like Pete Athens mm-hmm. and Steve Mock who have gone over and overseen the KCC for the last seven years. And what do you think, I guess, the hook is for, for people to want to be involved? Do you think it's because of this sense within those those members that are involved, whose names I know and who I admire as people, do you think it's because they feel the same kind of duty or obligation to pay back? Or is it part of a respect to Alex or, or just all a little bit of both, do you think, for many people? Initially, I think it might have been the connection to Alex, but I think that those people, well, Steve, you know, had never been to Nepal before he came over to the KCC. Oh, was it right? And so, yeah, so he was excited to be part of it, um, just to have an adventure and, and to go see the country and the, the highest mountains on the planet. But, but of course, Pete, as we know, you know, had an entire career over there, yeah. um, guiding on Everest and was very involved with the people and had a deep connection with the people. So I think it's a different thing for each individual. But then when you go and are part of something like KCC and feel the excitement of the people there. And you see how the hardships in their life and how the work that you're doing with them Mm -hmm. is going to benefit them. And I mean, it's just a, it's just a feel good thing. Everybody who who goes pretty much has, has a, a great experience, I think. As our conversation continues, Conrad discusses the adverse impact of mountain climbing on indigenous cultures in Nepal and the key founding principle of the Kungu Climbing Center. Starting in 1922 with the second English Everest expedition when an avalanche came down and swept uh, seven of the Darjeeling Sherpa that were working on the mm-hmm. expedition to their death. That was sort of the beginning of this dark underside to climbing the world's highest peaks. And it was um, in 53, May 29th, when Tenzing Norgay and Ed Hillary summited. And that um, was a great moment for Sherpa as a population. It gave them the opportunity to um, 
have a say in being on the mountains. And it was a great decision by John Hunt, the expedition leader, to have a Westerner and an Easterner there. Tenzing Norgate was the strongest climber there. He could <laughs> yeah. spend more time on the mountain. He knew more about it. So it was the right thing to do. In subsequent years, there's been more accidents involving the Sherpa, which is one of 70 ethnic groups within Nepal. And they have paid the price for the ambitions of high-altitude climbers and mountaineers. That sort of the, comes from that. And the typical way of looking at this, and it's supported by data, Westerners kind of expire at the summit because they're in over their heads and they're, mm-hmm. they're just... They want to make it happen. Yeah. They want to get to the summit, and then they peter out. And they, but the Nepalis are subject to ice fall uh, accidents, more exposure to avalanches, more exposed to failure of systems, fixed rope, and things like that, because they're spending more time in these dangerous areas getting the equipment and the material in place for the summit. In. So that's... The unfortunate reality of Himalayan climbing, automobiles here, Himalayan climbing, is that it is quite a cost to the local communities. And it's fair to say in the Kumbu, which is the main area of um, the main drainage for Mount Everest, there's not a family that hasn't had a direct loss, whether loss of life or injury, attributed to climbing. So um, there's, whether it's in your family or someone there, and yet at the same time, this work in the mountains is a way to bring much needed income to these communities. So Jeannie and I realized that um, mountain tourism isn't going to go away. I mean, one way to say, okay, let's ban all mountain tourism and the Sherpas won't work on it. They'll be safe. They don't need to be going up there anyways. It's just not going to happen. The Westerners yeah. idea of this thing. And, but inherently we believe mountain tourism is a great way to interact with other people and to move the wealth that we have amassed here in um, parts of Asia, Europe, and then North America to these communities in a meaningful way by interacting with the people and then um, taking back memory, memories and leaving money over there. It's a very simple way of looking at that. So understanding that mountain tourism was not going to dissolve or disappear, that the the logical thing to do was to make it safer for the people that are on the mountain. And Alex and I had experiences. We would um, just sort of be astounded that we'd see these people working on the mountain. Alex had guided Everest twice in 1992, and they were up there in cotton pants and sort of gas station sunglasses and a rope around their waist doing the most dangerous work. And there was this gap of ability between the visitors, the people that were coming in as guests to climb the mountain and what they were doing when they would be better. So pretty simple thing. If you're putting someone in harm's way for your own joy, and that's what it is, mountaineering is a recreation and joy, there is an obligation to make things safe for them. And so that was the, the nexus, the, the idea of the Kumbu Climbing Center was to increase the vocational training to make climbing safer for these people. And hopefully that, in effect, would then reduce the amount of suffering these communities have gone through. Right. And, and speaking of nexus, I think that maybe addresses a little bit 
your selection of uh, Forte. And I'm wondering if you could maybe expand a little bit on kind of the area operations and, and Forte and kind of that the impact to the local community, both in success and loss in that area and in that small village. In 1999, I was on the Mallory and Urban mm-hmm. Research Expedition, and um, that changed my career as an alpinist. Yeah. So it made tabloid news and for whatever it is, it's a different story. But the team that we're working with were all from the village of Fort Saint. Mm-hmm. So there was the eight climbing Sherpas. They were from this one village. So on that track that we we took together, it was my very first time to Nepal. Oh, wow. And really? Okay. So it was a real pilgrimage for me going up there and seeing all these mountains that Alex had climbed. And yeah, imagine through the stories, it almost felt like you knew it before yeah. you were there, right? And then... Uh, and the letters, you know, his many letters from up in there. Also, some of the peaks that Conrad had been on up there. And so we trekked together with the, with a group. We went up to Everest Base Camp, and then we went, you know, over some of the high passes. So we came back down through Forse and visited some of the people. We had one guy from Forse in our trekking group, and and when we were up, kind of traveling over one of the passes, we had gone to this little area and camped where there was a bit of an ice climb and Conrad and I had our ice gear with us. And so we decided, well, let's go over there and do an ice mm-hmm. climb. It was in the evening. And, and so the one guy from Fort Say and then a couple of other, uh, the Sherpa team that were there as trekking guides came and they were all interested. And so they were small. So I swapped out my boots and let them try it out. And they got on the ice with Conrad and they just had a ball. And we and so we had this light bulb come on and we're like, wow, they love this. They love ice climbing. They've never done it, but they're all keen. And, and, and then we started sort of brainstorming and thinking, well, it'd be a cool way to teach them the skills they need to know in the ice fall and on Everest, because we, had both learned how to ice climb on, you know, vertical ice and, uh, and then went into the mountains yeah. um, in a more alpine sense. And so, so, um, so Conrad and I, when we came down through Forte, we looked around and Conrad's like, wow, you know, this would be a, a great spot. He, he asked uh, the locals there, he said, are, are those waterfalls over there, are they frozen in the winter? And they're like, yeah, all ice all around here, you know, mm. ice. And so when we came back, we kind of talked about it and said, well, what, what about, you know, going up in the winter when they're not working and, you know, having a clinic and starting kind of a school each year where those people who want to learn those skills can come. And so that was the, that was the initial idea that we had together. I think it's really insightful what you said there is that, wow, these guys really love ice climbing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because I think that's a misconception a lot of people have is that, that these guys, uh, the, the Sherpa just, they have nothing but free time and they're out there just climbing and honing their craft. And that's why they are climbing Sherpa. I mean, the reality is, is you also even have to pick a good time of year for you to be there so that they have the free time where they're not working the land, right? I, I think that's just a, it's a poignant comment about the realities of what their life is and in, in, in the annual scale of things and, and really the fact that they didn't have access to, to enjoy this sport, but they were working it. Yeah, they didn't really right. even know about it. <laughs> How did that make you feel to actually see them enjoying your sport? It, it's interesting because the, the Nepalis would come into 
working in the mountains from a vocational standpoint. They were being offered much more than they could yeah. make uh, planting potatoes and harvesting buckwheat and tending their yaks and their chickens, which yeah. is the basic of their of their lifestyle. So they were able to make more money, but it was also very dangerous. And so when you combine the income with the fatalities that happen on the mountain, it doesn't leave a positive place for climbing to be. So it's oftentimes they're like, well, you guys are climbing mountains because in your previous incarnation, you did something wrong. So you're going up there to suffer <laughs> and there's no sense of it being fun. Yeah. And when you think about it in terms of Maslow's hierarchy yeah. and where yeah. one is on the path to self-actualization, this is the farthest thing they've yeah. They're, they're not at the top of the pyramid yet. They're yeah. concerned with food and shelter. Yeah, absolutely. And then they have education. And then there's belief system and religion. And then working on towards that. But one of the fundamental changes that we've been able to see here is this acceptance of climbing and wilderness sports as an avocation. So they do it for rejuvenation, for relaxation, for, um, in the grand picture, the self-actualization. I mean, that's a pretty cerebral turn yeah. onto something as simple as going bouldering <laughs> going down to the climbing gym yeah. like that but yeah. I truly believe that is why people go out and they challenge themselves with that so to see that uh, this transition similar to what took place in the Alps 150-200 years ago when the golden age of exploration it was the land of gentry of England and France that in Germany and Italy that would then go into the mountains. So the Duke of Abruzzi is a great example. So mm-hmm. We have a wealthy person that then hires these people out yeah. to take them up into the mountains, including his four-post bed and all these extravagances. <laughs> and the people that took him in the mountains, the, the shepherds and the woodcutters that were inhabitants of these high valleys, eventually realized, okay, we're good at this, yeah. and we enjoy it. And then they became the better climbers. And you look at the... Um, the people in the Chamonix Valley that um, were able to take the skills two, three generations on and then increase the ability of what they were able to do as climbers and sort of uh, make that sport something else. Uh, in the 50s is a good example of where we began to appreciate the art of climbing um, more than just the, um, going up there. And that same transition is taking place in Nepal where it's going from seen as something that's an economic driver, it's vocational to an avocational point. And yeah. That the Nepalis participating in the Southeast Asia Sport Climbing Championships um, in recent years, all Nepali first ascents of mountains. So without the Westerners coming there, coming there to climb and challenge themselves on these routes, doing ascents of climbs that um, they um, become comfortable with. Yeah. So to be part of that transition to teach vocational training schools, but with an avocational uh, angle to it, you'll become a better climber. And that's yeah. one of the things that if you don't like climbing and it scares you and you go out there and it's miserable, then don't go climbing. But if you're out there and you're motivated and it's something you love to do and you're excited about mm-hmm. it, you will be a better, better. and safer mm-hmm. climber. Yeah. And so that's the the point of transition that we're, we're looking with this. Yeah. And so now when we get out with our Nepali friends and go climbing with them. They want to try it for the same reasons we do. Yeah. Make it to the top. Right. What's it like? Was that, was that intended or is this something you think you just, I mean, did you, when you started this idea, is that a concept you had in your mind that you thought 
would be really Im- important in, to entrain and engender as, as part of the culture of the Kumu climbing school? Uh, or was it something that just over time you began to just, you began to witness this parallel, like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing this thing that happened in Europe over a time scale of hundreds of years, and we're seeing it happening in 10, 20 years. Well, we see the, the similarities with Europe because of the mountain craft mm-hmm. mountain trade, but that moment that Jenny mentioned when we're cragging at the yeah. end of the day, that was this epiphany that yeah. Yeah. they love to do this. So that was um, providing avocational um, way to do it. And if you do live in the Kumbu or you live in Nepal, you've got mountains everywhere. Yeah. And so are we doing the right thing? Jane, I deeply believe that yeah. getting people out climbing and sport climbing is better than having them play pool in a, in a billiards hall. Right. And drinking alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is some. Yeah. Rakshi and cigarettes. Well, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Know that, you know, That's really interesting. There's yeah. a lot of human beings on this planet and, you know, we, we make our choices about how much risk we take, but, and they are, they're making their choices. And so, you know, there's this, there's this thought that, Oh, all the terrible Westerners make the Sherpas go up there on the mountains and die, but that isn't true. You know, they're, they're making their choice to work in that environment mm-hmm. and, and it isn't forced on them. Um, it, it's the best job. So they make that choice. Um, but they're also making the choice to learn the skill. And we see that they're taking a lot of pride right. and joy in attaining those skills, at least through our school. We, we see that and we, we see them laughing and having fun and taking pride in the skills that they acquire and and then and then leadership mm-hmm. leadership and sharing those skills with others and you know as i mentioned last night with on whose post on instagram this morning i saw him <laughs> on a kayak out by out by uh, he's in iceland you know i mean he's he's this guy who uh, you know first came to our school um <laughs> years ago uh and hadn't really ventured out in nepal and now he's just all over the world and uh, so it's pretty uh, phenomenal to see this transition as conrad said happens so quickly yeah yeah and I, and I think it's funny when you brought up this context of, of, of you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And certainly the truth is, is we see many people at the bottom of that pyramid as far as their needs in the third world. But in hearing the stories of those who have been through the program and in it and are now teachers within the program, I mean, they're starting to self-actualize their potential. It seems like that they really find joy and pride that you said in becoming an educator and, and having these opportunities that you've provided for them. And are you starting to see that? trickle down with the most senior, the ones that have had the training very early on, the very early years of the program? Um, is it very tangible and palpable to you now that there's, a, there's like, they're kind of a mentor, the mentor relationship within, within actually the organization between say the new students that are showing up and those have, that have become kind of the trainers that are there? Yeah, they share their experience freely with their fellow mm-hmm. members there. And Summiting Everest is a big deal in Nepal. Mm-hmm. We don't have baseball, football, hockey, yeah, right. organized sports and for Everest. And Everest climber is a big deal in Nepal. And so making it to the summit is something that is um, a way to a more comfortable lifestyle. So the young climbers look up to the senior climbers and they're sharing their experience. And then 
in the process, making it safer for everyone, both the Nepalis and the visiting climbers. We have a lot of Sherpa friends who have many, many ascents of Everest. Appa, for a while, held the record, but then that record, I mean, the, the Sherpas love, you know, racking up the ascents, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that makes them more valuable in their work. And so they they do take pride in it, but the the senior guys, like, um, you know, many of our friends from Forte, they, they also have an understanding that that's something that you can't come in and just grab it. You need to get those skills to do it safely. Yeah. And they see the danger in it, too. They know. Later on in our conversation, we expand on the benefits of education and the concept of generational fairness. I wanted to talk about a different idea that, that came up last night as well. And, and a part of it came up in a story, in the story of uh, Amadaki and the history just within her family, over 60 summits of Everest with within her lineage alone in, in Fortse. And carrying on from, from that story of Amadaki, uh, I think, Conrad, you brought up this, this concept of generational fairness. Uh, can you maybe expand, explain a little bit more what that means? Great. Thanks for asking the question. Yeah. So, um, generational fairness, I guess the way that we might be able to first identify it here is the education system. So um, we were part of the education system. We benefited from it, and it was great. But while we were doing it, we weren't in the position to pay for it. So it's as we get older that we realize the benefit of education. So you're in the metaphorical way, planting the fruit tree from which the fruit you will not yeah, ever harvest. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. there's that, that yeah. saying that, and that's, uh, it's very much, um, and I, when people are young, their life is about their own existence and yeah. it's very self-centered and things like that. But as people mature, they realize what's going on um, in that, in that sense. And so um, to have that same outlook with the generations of people that are climbing in, on, uh, in the mountains, and we're now into the third generation of Everest summers, um, grandfathers that worked with Hillary and then yeah. fathers that worked in the 80s, and then um, sons and daughters that are now working in, the, in, in this current day and age. So there's um, that way of understanding that what you're doing isn't going to necessarily benefit you, but it will collectively benefit society in the long run. Yeah. And I think that's an important step. And, and you commented on this as well last night is, is at some point you realize not all the important impacts you make, are you actually going to see in your lifetime? Right. And I think that brings up and introduces a bit of the concept of the new construction project and in, in the building and and perhaps was that part of the inspiration for that um and maybe you can tell me a little bit more about the, the concept and the idea of the current fundraising project for the center okay so probably by about the fourth year um uh the the people in Forte, where we were holding the school each each uh, winter, and we were going up, and each year we had more and more 
uh, students come and more interest in the mm-hmm. program. They saw the benefits right away, and and so that was that was awesome. But there was right away. Well, you know, we should have a building. We would like to have a building to house the KCC, and so that was them saying that to us. And we looked around. We said, well, what about you know? Is there any buildings around here that we could use? You know, what about this old building over here on the side of the hill or whatever? And they're like, no, no, we want to build a building. <laughs> and so, so Conrad and I thought, well, that would be that would be neat, you know. I don't know how much that would cost, but we kind of ventured into it, you know, thinking, well, it's what they want. And so let's, let's think about, you know, how we could do that. And right away, Conrad's like, well, if we're going to build a building up there or help them to build a building, um, we should think about it being a better building than what they have, something that's safer and better for them. The buildings there are mostly stone, um, stack stone and if you're poor you have more like little small rubble stones and you know if you're wealthier you can have the beautiful carved stones that sit all nicely together but um many of them are dry stacked and so in an earthquake they're going to rubble apart and fall down might have a little bit of mud Mm -hmm. sort of cementing them together so we knew it was an earthquake zone and we thought well if we make a building of any size we should make it earthquake safe or you know at least think about that so we approached a friend that conrad had um at msu who was in architecture montana state university yeah Yeah. i mean yeah and so he was working in the architecture department he just got super excited and said this could be a project for our grad students and so roughly what year was this and that kind of the first idea about the building has it been about four years now or something? No, no, 2005, 2006. Oh, wow. Oh, so, wow. So the genesis was quite some time ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. we, so we first uh, started thinking, and we didn't really have a timeline. We're like, well, okay. we'll just see how long it takes to come up with some ideas. And, and then it evolved. So the students went over, I think three groups of students went over, um, over a period hmm. of, you know, a, a few years. And Initially, they just went as a kind of a recon along with our group and to look at Forte and see what they thought and bring back the information and then um, building information. So sort of what what kind of materials are there, you know, what are the styles of the buildings they have? And then and then so this group of grad students put forth a number of designs and they, they kind of had a content out. which yeah, cool. And then they actually took the winning charrettes and mm-hmm. took them to Forza. The villagers decide which one they wanted. And of course, the villagers chose the most complicated <laughs> fancy building they had. <laughs> so um, so it, it's been an evolution. No good deed goes unpunished. Yes. So, so then we did have the, um, the two landowners who were super excited uh. and uh, uh, to to donate, they they live next door to each other, so they each donated a portion of their land, you know, for the building, and we kind of uh, sketched out how much land would be needed for this center, and so it's been a kind of a slow process, um, <laughs> you know, the whole design, but it also a wonderful process in that all of those students. Uh, who came over and were participating in that, it was life-changing for many of them. Mm. You know, they chose their career paths sometimes because of that experience. And 
I know that a few of those students are now working as architects, you know, in uh, orgs around the world, helping to build buildings for people in need, you know, and, and I've heard from some of them as the years go by. So anyway, that was, that was certainly a process, but then, you know, the actual building itself started out, we just raised a little bit of money each year and did a little bit of work. Um, Mm -hmm. First excavating the spot where it would be and having uh, one of those grad students went over to Nepal to kind of oversee that and lived there for a number of months in the village and enjoyed that. Mostly all volunteers going over to help us out. So, and then, you know, we, we, got to a point where the building had some walls up and and then that earthquake happened and some of our walls that it was not all braced and uh, really ready for an earthquake. It wasn't in its final mode of Mm -hmm. structural uh, security. And so the earthquake did damage that and we had to kind of um, take some things down and, and, and go back up again. But, about two years ago, we just went after after the earthquakes had happened. We're like, okay, we need to get on this building and get it done. So that's when that real impetus happened for fundraising. Right. And what's just to educate others who might be listening? What's the the goal of what will eventually be housed there, and what sort of programs will be, I guess, hosted uh, at this building? So it will uh, have a indoor uh, climbing gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have a state-of-the-art gym with Waltopia-designed uh, bouldering wall and one section that will have a row. So, so that'll be really nice. Um, some workout equipment, and and that will also serve as a great room. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be a community center for the village of Fort Say, that a nice place to gather indoors that's safe and warm. The building is also um, passive solar having south-facing windows, so it will maintain a temperature of about 60 degrees year-round oh. without any internal heat. Mm. So, so that's a pretty cool yeah. design feature. And then upstairs, we will have a library. And so the Magic Yeti Library, which is a children's library, we have about seven of those um, that we've started in rural areas mm-hmm. of Nepal. And um, there's one in Fort Say. And so that'll move in there, and then we're going to have a, a nice climbing library in there as well. Um, so that'll be part of it. And the downstairs will have storage area for all of the the winter uh, ice climbing mm-hmm. clinics and rock climbing as well. Um, there's been a number of rock routes put up right around Fort Say, and, right. and it's kind of taking off as uh, the young uh, <laughs> guys get inspired to yeah. get better at it, and uh, they're putting up some roots, and they're pretty proud of it. <laughs> yeah, Conrad's been part of that, and uh, cool. getting out climbing with them, and so... Um, so then the medical clinic, which they've had a tiny medical clinic, which is sometimes uh, manned by a nurse, but sometimes not even. Yeah. And so, so we're going to have a nice medical clinic in the building, and that'll be a real boon to Fort Sink, to the yeah. villagers and the people around there. Yeah. And you mentioned, too, I mean, naturally a community shelter, too, in a time yes. of need, because yes. that is a large structure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And so how far along are you in the fundraising goal right now? And what are, what's your trajectory as far as when you'd like to complete the structure? 
we set out at the beginning of this year in January to raise a million dollars. And with, with that in mind, we'd already put some money into the school, but uh, we wanted to get to this point. We think that will finish our building and give us a little bit of extra to endow. It's really hard to project exactly how much it's going to cost as time goes on and, inflation and materials and transport it gets a very remote place so we're about halfway there in this goal and i expect and hope that we will reach it by the end of the year with the momentum we have now yeah people are pretty excited about it when they see the work that we've put into it for 15 years and how how this is going to as you said you know provide kind of like a final place for them to really rally around mm-hmm. and feel pride in and, and uh, physical representation physical of that for that representation mm-hmm. of all of those years yeah right the thing i wanted to to add and actually to pass on a, a thanks to you guys i think beyond what you've done in in forte it's actually in, inspired a lot of other philanthropic work and the model in which you've started has made an impact on others and i was speaking with Conrad earlier, it's kind of as a way of secondhand thanks from uh, another interviewee, Paul Charlton, who worked with Kerpacare, who you graciously opened up the doors to allow some Pakistani, some Baltistanis to come and, and train with the program at the Kumbu Climbing Center. And he wanted to share with you that to this day, they're still so appreciative of that opportunity. Three of the four are still actively working and, and training other Baltistanis in that region. And the one thing that he found was really uh, most remarkable of that experience and speaking with them afterwards is, is how, mu- how important it was for cultural understanding for them. Because, I mean, just like another, any other foreign country or foreign people, you have your preconceived notions of what they're about and who they are. And he got a lot of positive feedback from the Baltistanis of how much they appreciated that time. And he really found that to be kind of the greatest success of that program. So he wanted to be sure to express that thanks to you and, and how that's really, Conrad, as you said, in, in Pakistan, it's begun to start their pathway of, as far as this like positive identity and mountain culture in Pakistan, you know, and, and actually wanting to be climbers. And I think even within the Kumbu itself, I mean, you've inspired other organizations and you, and you spoke of last night, Pasang Lamu and what, she's done. Maybe you could briefly mention her and how she's carried on from her experience with uh, the Kumbu Climbing School. Pasang Lamu is an amazing young woman who was from Lukla and uh, she was orphaned fairly young in her life and so began working as a young girl and she came to our climbing school, gosh, maybe it was about your... Year two, 2005. Oh, 2005. That's pretty good, Conrad. Anyway, uh, and and she took ice climbing, and she was just a natural right away, very athletic, and but mostly determined. You know, she's like, I want to do this, and she loves climbing, and so she she really now has become an advocate for women climbing, and and it's something that she says is is a struggle. In, within her country. We may not see that ourselves so much, but she certainly does. So she's become a national hero. She won the National Geographic Explorers Award, mm-hmm. um, their Adventure of the Year last year. And she 
uh, managed to go on and ascend Everest and then K2 uh, with a group of women mm-hmm. from uh, Nepal. And then she has gone on to guide all around the world. She's down in South America. She's gone to Europe. She's a guest speaker at various conferences and film fests and things like that. And um, she has quite a career. She's not left her country, though. She still lives in Nepal, Mm. and she takes quite a bit of pride in being Nepali. And when the earthquake happened, she was one of the first ones just to spring into action and get right out into the little remote villages where there was need for just the simple things to care for people, warm blankets and things like that. Mm. She she rallied, and she started her own nonprofit to help... uh, uh, orphans and the elderly women and young children who were in need. And she's done a lot for her country, you know, just pride and leadership and and for the young women there. Yeah. I'm just super proud of her. Yeah, and that's an amazing young woman. And that was what I was inspired to hear about last night is the fact that, I mean, I think part of her involvement was subsequently inspired her to, to think about her own mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm. And, and how she utilizes her platform now as an athlete. I mean, mm-hmm. she has this, this pride of a very successful climber and athlete and, and, and that she's giving back now too. And I think that's a amazing lasting legacy of the program too, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you guys are very proud of as well. And it's, uh, it's just awesome. And, <laughs> and she's got sponsorship and, yeah. you know, she gets uh, her notoriety in the press and right. all of that. So right. it's wonderful. And now we finish by looking back on lessons learned in the process and leave you with some advice for the next generation of adventurers who hope to bring positive change to the world. I think this is an amazing lasting legacy that you're creating for yourselves and for Alex. And I, it's, it's an honor to sit here and talk to you and hear about the story. Looking back, is there anything that you you wish you could have done differently or that you learned from the experience or has just the journey itself been the joy of it, like the uncertainty of what was going to happen and just the discovery process? Is there anything that stands out to you at all? There might be things you'd do differently if you knew, but I never think like that. You can't go back in time. And, you know, I think that there's so many good things that have come out of it. And we've stumbled along maybe at times not really knowing just, you know, how big of a project the building was, certainly. Yeah, right. We went into that, I think, a little bit naive. But I think at the end of it all, we're going to be super happy mm-hmm. with uh, what it is and and the good it's brought to many communities, right. um, including the the artisans who have worked on it and that we've helped to have a better lifestyle. Right. You know? So That's great. I, I do feel like all our dollars that go over there are doing something good. Conrad, I want to finish back one more time on this concept of generational fairness and, and leaving a, a legacy beyond your time. Certainly this is a, a living example of that and talking about the Kumbu Climbing Center, but part of the inspiration of this podcast and part of what I'm often asked about is young people are looking for 
a way to make a difference. And they don't know how because either they feel they're not legitimate enough yet because they don't have this athlete platform. You know, they're not, they're not in, they don't have the notoriety or they can't influence people. And yet they are compelled to do something. And especially now more than ever, I think there's a lot of causes to feel passionate about. And unfortunately, there's many things there's a real sense of urgency about uh, with climate and other social justice issues throughout the world. And what is it that you, looking at the next generations and and being in a position where you are inspiring others that are younger, you what do you hope for the next generation? What do you hope that they may be able to achieve with their interests and and trying to make a positive impact in the world? Chances are, if you're listening to this, your most basic needs are met. And um, if you are a citizen of the United States, we're 4% of the world's population, yet we use 25 to 3% of the world's resources. So we have a very top-heavy existence. And there are some people that they don't care. They're like, well, I need more. I'm going to have more for yeah. myself. And you know, if I'm wealthier, you'll be, you'll be better off because I'm wealthy. <laughs> the effective altruism argument. Yeah, the, 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 the thinly veiled, oh, I'm going to give the tax breaks to the wealthiest and it's going to help out the poor people, which is baloney. But um, that's not this podcast. It's a different one. <laughs> um, but there's um, this – if you are in this, this position that we are in, there's, um, I think, a responsibility to give something back. Um, we are very fortunate. And to do that – one, start out with something you're an expert at. So if you're an expert at knitting wool socks, you can teach people to knit wool socks. If you're an expert at um, poetry or a doctor as yourself or whatever, you have something that you are good at and let that be sort of the start from where you want to go do this. Mm-hmm. And as you travel around the world, there is plenty need there's plenty of want so there's no shortage of ways that we can do this but do it because you're passionate about it and you know what you're doing we happen to be climbers so um we are focusing on climbing yes it'd be great to be um an agricultural expert and increase wheat yields and all that but that's just not i'm a mountain climber and so i'll focus on that but as you travel be aware of of who you are and what your impact is going to be. So a lot of these people will look up to you. They'll be like, oh, they're successful and it's, what are they exporting? It's sort of the the media of the United States and this lifestyle that we put out there. So in that sense, there's two things that I'm mindful of when I travel to developing countries. One is cultural appropriation. So where I go over there and I'm like, oh, I'm going to become a a sadhu and I'm going to live in a a cave and meditate the whole time. And the other one is cultural imperialism where rather than trying to appropriate Hinduism, as I just mentioned, you're going to come over and say, well, check this out. My God is really, really awesome and you've got to sign up for him and it's going to be really good for you. And and it's kind of a, both those finding that don't appropriate and don't force what you believe on other people kind of find that balance and the respect. way of least uh, resistance, the way of the water. Yes. Mm-hmm. Based on respect for them. Yeah. So that um, that's sort of a key part of um, how we can travel the world and have a, a, a lasting impact on it. And that understanding takes time. <laughs> I think we also talked a little bit or some other folks that I was speaking with last night uh, at dinner. It's like, you know, they just, 
nothing can make up for the fact that you you need to spend the time and, and learn, you know, you mm-hmm. don't get a sense of what's important to them and what's culturally appropriate and mm-hmm. what's appropriate to ask for, or what's appropriate to give them until mm-hmm. you spend the time to find out, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Not many shortcuts. No. <laughs> in this line of work. Yeah. And experience is the teacher. Experience I mean, is a teacher. Absolutely. That is at the end of the day, your experiences will influence who you become. Yeah. And then when you take that and add it to the collective ball of knowledge and then pass that on to the next generation, that's what being human is. That's why we are the dominant species on this planet. Yeah. For better or worse, we've got to address things in the next 200 years. <laughs> Lest we extinguish ourselves with our overly developed minds. Yeah. We've got to use these overly developed minds to find solutions to them. So how can the world live with a sense of equanimity between cultures and balance and understanding? Well, thank you too for your time and mm-hmm. your experience. It's been inspirational for me and I'm sure many will find it very inspirational. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Terry. Yeah, thank you for what you're doing. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. Well, once again, I'd like to thank Conrad Anker and Jenny Lowe Anker for their time. To learn more about the Alex Lowe Charitable Foundation, please go to www.alexlowe.org. That's A-L-E-X-L-O-W-E.org to learn more about the building project. And of course, please consider leaving a donation. If you'd like to learn more about these two amazing people, here's some additional info. You can check out Jenny's beautiful artwork at JennyLowe.com. That's J-E-N-N-I-L-O-W-E.com. Or consider reading her memoir, Forget Me Not, winner of the National Outdoor Book Award. You'll, of course, find Conrad's name wherever you read about climbing or outdoor adventure. But I'd recommend the book, The Lost Explorer, the account of finding Mallory on Everest, or for an even more riveting experience, watch Maru, an account of the multi-year saga and high-stakes challenge to climb the shark's fin on Mount Maru in India. And, well, finally, I'd like to thank you for listening to episode one of the Adventure Activist Podcast. Our support comes from, well, at this point, no one. At present, this is a project fueled purely by passion. And to learn more about our group and what we do, go to www.theadventureactivist.org or find us on Instagram at The Adventure Activist. If this episode inspired and added value to your life and passions, please consider making a donation. Even a dollar an episode would be incredible. If nothing else, follow us for future episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else you find podcasts. Give us a good review, share with your friends. Your support means so much. Thanks all, and keep adventuring.